Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Good morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing? So we're going to dive into Romans 1-6, but I'll invite everyone to turn to 1-4 first, and then we'll pray and get started. All right, let's stand to pray. Heavenly Father, we come, you, we come before you in the Holy Spirit through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ and entreat you to bless us with your presence today, for you are the true teacher that illuminates your word and implants the understanding and knowledge of your truth deep within our hearts. We ask you, O Lord, to open our eyes, to open our ears, and open our hearts, that we may receive your word and not only know it with our minds, but therein live it and treasure it in our hearts. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to dive into Romans chapter 1, verse 6 today, but I want to backtrack briefly and go over one point in regards to the grace of God. So, the end of Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. So to go back, core doctrine of the Christian faith number five is that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But the key thing that I want the church to be aware of is that the grace of God is not something, is not an event. It's not something that only touched us at some point in the past to now save us. It's not something that only touched us at some point in the way back in the corridors of time where God now bestowed grace upon us and now he leaves us alone. The received grace that we get from God is not only a gift that we have received in the past, it's a gift that we are receiving, present tense, right now, and it's also something that we will receive later on in the future. Here's the big point. The grace of God not only saved us, but it also sustains us. God's grace enables us to have faith in Christ and also to not lose that faith. Because if the grace of God ever, for one second, were to stop flowing from our Heavenly Father through Christ, no one would be able to maintain their own faith. It's something that's implanted and therein sustained and animated through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This tells us that every Christian is a walking, living, breathing miracle. Why do I say that? I say that because it's miraculous 
that God bestowed upon us his unmerited favor in the first place, it's also miraculous that he continues to bestow grace upon us in and throughout our lives. In fact, God's grace is, as Lamentation says, is fresh and new each and every morning. Now, the fact that every Christian is a walking, living, breathing miracle also communicates the reality that that miracle is necessary without God daily doing something miraculous by his grace, we wouldn't stand a chance. Why do I say that? What was the message last week? We're at war. As members of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness is daily waging war. I or you, we don't stand a chance if we were to ever think we can go head-to-head -head with the devil or his demons. We will, be, we will be wiped out in a second. So God's grace sustains us to maintain our faith, to be able to resist in fighting that invisible war. The world is also full of traps. It's full of idols. It's full of distractions that try to take our minds away from following in a path of sincere faith. And based upon our own inherent ability, our strength is small and our hearts are weak. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. What does he mean? He's basically saying when he admits his own powerlessness, when he admits his utter dependency and neediness upon God, because what does God say next? My grace is sufficient for you. So the Apostle Paul is basically saying, Lord, I realize my heart is weak. I realize my strength is limited. But as long as I cleave tightly to you, that is what will animate and sustain me to walk the Christian walk and to live the Christian life. What does Jesus tell the man who would soon be the Apostle Peter in Luke chapter 22, verses 32, talking about the sustaining effects of God's grace. Jesus tells Peter, I have prayed for you so that what? So that your faith will not fail. We receive grace through Jesus Christ as Romans 1, chapters 4 to 5 communicates, and Jesus right now, at this very second, is interceding for us. He's mediating for us because we now have a friend and an advocate who is the right hand of God the Father through whom grace now flows down to us, which enables us to live the Christian life. The priestly office of Jesus, in that office, he functions as an intercessor for his sheep. And he is the one who secures fresh mercies for us each and every day. So, the grace of God that saves us is in the past. God has saved us by his grace. It operates in the present. God is saving us by his grace, and it will operate in the future. God will save us by his grace. We are saved by grace through faith, and that faith is made possible through Christ. And I say all that to come back to a point I made last week, to, to hit the nail on the head. 
If we ever were saved by our faith, if our faith was causal in saving us, what does reality tell us? That our faith fails. Why? Because we're weak. Why? Because we're waver. God's grace never fails, but our faith does all the time. If our salvation ever depended on our faith, then our salvation would fall apart. And what Jesus says is as long as you have a mustard seed's worth of faith, you will be saved. Who here has ever held a mustard seed in their hand? When I went to Israel, there were few things I said I would bring back. These are Israeli mustard seeds. So Sister Rhoda, take one and pass it around. Now the good news is, mustard seeds are edible and they actually have potent anti-inflammatory properties. So, if you don't want to throw them out, you can eat them. Now, what's the point in giving you mustard seeds? Now, for those who are hearing this via an audio tape or on your phone, a mustard seed is teeny tiny. In the hand of an adult, it's like a speck. It's even tiny in the hands of a child. And what Jesus tells us is that if you have faith this small, you will be saved, which communicates to us what? That, that tiny, tiny bit of faith is small. It's insignificant. It almost doesn't make any sense. How could faith the size of a mustard seed that could fit on the tip of my pinky, how could that save anybody? And the answer is, that faith is made real not because of the faith. That faith is made real because of its object, who is Christ, who is infinite, who is eternal, who is all-powerful. So if you take your little fingers and take a pinch of Christ and have a mustard seed dose of faith, it's because that faith clings to him. Because of faith's object, that is what saves us. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Our faith is powerful because of its object, because of who it is attached to and cleaves to. And not only do, do, do you and I cleaving to Jesus, does that begin our relationship with God, we also never let go. And as the doctrine of sanctification tells us, as we grow and mature in our walk and our faith grows, now we go from a pincher grasp to holding on to his legs, to bear-hugging Jesus stronger and stronger, so we never let go. Question. The Old Testament says. Yes. They walk by faith. Correct. In Christ as well, right? Well, they walked by faith in God. So, in Genesis it says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So in the Old Testament now, in the Old Dispensation, they believed and trusted in God. So we can't apply the, what was revealed to us now through Christ to them. They just knew that God was the author and creator of reality and they trusted in him. They couldn't specifically 
believe in the second member of the Godhead because he wasn't revealed yet. But the object of their faith, we're saying the same thing in that the object of their faith was God, wasn't himself, wasn't their works, wasn't men. So we are saved by grace because the, and even more, we are saved by grace because the grace of God never dies because Christ always lives. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them, the people of God. So, to make sure doctrinal terms are correct, we are saved past tense by God. That's justification. That's when God, by his grace, regenerates us and turns our hearts. We respond to God in faith. Now we are justified. We are once and forever declared righteous in the eyes of God. We are being saved by grace, by sanctification, where step by step and day by day we grow and are made holy. We are going to be the recipients of more grace later on when we are finally and ultimately glorified. We're now after the penalty of sin is paid, we're released from the power of sin in the present life, we will finally and fully be freed from the pollution of sin in the sinless paradise that is heaven. And our glorification now is the ultimate consummation of God's grace saving us, past, present, and future. So, and as Hebrews 7.25 tells us, because Christ lives and is actively making intercession for us, Christ is still working for his people. This all highlights the fact that when we say that we are saved by grace through faith, God does not show us mercy and then leave us alone. He continues to do so every moment of our lives, and that is how powerful the grace of God is. So before we move on to verse number six, any questions? Good. So Romans 1, verse 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So in verse number five, Paul says he's speaking in and amongst the Gentiles. And now as a subset of all the Gentiles in Rome, Paul now says, among whom? Among all the Gentiles. So among all that group, you. And that you is plural. So now in Romans chapter 1, Paul is now going to turn to the original listening audience of the Church of Rome and begin by making a personal address. And in fact, Romans chapter 1 verses 7 to 15 is a personal address before Paul begins diving into core doctrinal teaching. So. Paul is saying, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. What characterizes you? What characterizes you or you all is that they are called. More specifically, they are effectually called. Now, we already went over calling, I think maybe in one of the first two or three verses. So someone please tell me. When we talk about someone being effectually called by God, what do we mean? Does it mean me saying, hey, you over there? Is that, is that what it means? No. 
you, we are called for a purpose and a reason, but what, what specifically does being called of God mean? Right, you're almost there. So when we talk about a call now, you have a general call and an effectual call. What happens every Sunday morning? There's a general call where anyone anywhere around the world can hear the proclamation of the Word of God and can hear the proclamation of the Gospel. That is a message that any male can get up and preach to the world, right? But there's no guarantee that a human being will actually respond to natural words that are spoken. When God now effectually calls someone, by the ordinary means of grace of his word, he then takes his word from his book, he then takes that word and it goes past now your natural eardrums, it awakens your dead spirit, it warms your heart, and now it turns. So now you respond to the Word of God, and figuratively speaking now, the voice of God calls you, and whenever God calls, no one, let's go to voicemail, right? When God calls, he then draws you into himself. So there's a general call, and then there's an effectual call. So when, when Paul writes, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, that essentially means they are called of God, that essentially means they have been effectually called, which simply means they are regenerated, they are born again, and they are now incorporated into the family of God, and they are co-heirs of an eternal spiritual kingdom with Jesus Christ, and they are justified, they are declared righteous in the eyes of God, and they are now under God's protection and care for life, because now he's not an impersonal force, now he's their heavenly Father who called them. So that's what effectual calling is. Now, this is an important idea to realize because in the New Testament, the Greek word for the church is ecclesia, which actually means those who are called out of. So literally, when you translate the Greek word church, ecclesia, it's two different words. It means those individuals who have been called from or out of something. And that call is now positive and negative. So God calls us out of darkness, into his marvelous light. He calls us out of the world into his church. He calls us out of rebellion, unbelief in the Messiah to love and trusting faith in Jesus Christ. So the people of God are members of the ecclesia. They are called by God out of the world, out of bondage, out of sin, out of death, and into the church where there is now reconciliation with God. And look at what's happening in our epistle. The Apostle Paul is an apostle. He's someone sent by God. So who are the people who are actually going to listen to and read this letter? The people who are called by God, called by God. So the Apostle uh, Paul is sent, and the people who are now called by God are going to listen to the word of God that's being proclaimed by the man who was sent by God. If you see, it's God's fingerprints from start to finish. Okay. 
Now in the immediate context, when Paul says you, among whom you were called, that refers to Roman Christians living 2,000 years ago. But that now contextually applies to all the people of God all around the world in the borderless tribe that is the ecclesia, that is the church now. And when we incorporate what Paul says in other epistles, if God now calls you out of something into his church, it doesn't actually matter where you were called out from now, does it? Right? It doesn't matter if you're an American. It doesn't matter if you're black, if you're white, if you speak Spanish or you speak Farsian. It doesn't really matter. Because wherever you were called out from, there's no hope there. There's no destiny. There's no salvation. But you, we were now called out of something into his church, and now we are all one. This is why Paul will say in another epistle, there's neither Greek nor Jew nor Gentile, because all those earthly distinctions now have no relevance. What matters the most now is that we have been called, and not where we came from, but where we're going, which is to be with God in paradise forever. So what now matters once God calls us is not our earthly origins. What actually matters is our spiritual destination, guaranteed because God is the one who called us. So called of Jesus Christ refers to the reality that Christ is the one who mediates the call. Therefore, those who respond to the call of the gospel exhibit faith in Christ, and those who by grace that have faith are saved through Jesus. So let's take a step back and realize who Paul is speaking to. He says in verse number five that he was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But he is now preaching and teaching to a particular subset of Gentiles, those who are called in the church at Rome. Because the reality is, as it was then, as it is now, not all Gentiles are saved. Not all are called of Jesus Christ. So Paul is speaking to a particular subset of Gentiles who know Christ as their Lord. So here now is a critical probing question. Did Jesus die for everyone? Who says yes? Come on, don't, don't be bashful. Hands up. Who says yes? Everyone says yes. Okay. You sure? Okay. Let me refine the question. We live in a world where some people don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Right? You don't need a theology degree to know that. That's reality. Right? Okay. So let's refine the question. Did Jesus die for everyone so that ultimately everyone would be saved? Or did he die ultimately so that only some people would be saved? Now I'll ask it again. 
did Jesus die for everyone? Who says yes? Let's refine it further. By design, realize what I'm saying, by design, by God's design, did Jesus die so that salvation would be made merely possible? Or did Jesus die specifically for a definite people so that by design, all people that God died for would be saved. Let me ask it again. By design, by God's design, did Jesus die so that salvation would be made merely possible, or did Jesus die specifically for a definite people so that by design, all people that God died for would be saved. Now, as you can probably tell, answering that question will take at least 30 minutes. So I'm going to answer it in, in totality next week. But that's for next week. We're going to establish some general principles now. And I'll give you a scripture reading for next week Sunday. So when asking this question, remember, we're asking about God's design in sending his son. We're talking about the efficiency of the cross. We are not, we are not, we are not talking about the sufficiency of the cross. What do I mean? We're not, we're not trying to prove or disprove that the worst sinner possible can be saved by Christ. Why? Because the atonement that Christ made on the cross is sufficient. Almost no one would argue that the value, that the saving power of Jesus' blood can save the worst sinner possible. I'm not saying this happened, but if Adolf Hitler had genuine saving faith in Christ, his sin never stood a chance against the blood of Christ on the cross. We're not arguing against the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We are not considering if what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for all sinners. We're asking if by design it was efficient for some sinners. Another way of saying it, we are not asking if the blood of Christ can atone for any, every, or even the worst sinner. We are asking if God sent his son to die on a cross with the intent of specifically applying that atonement only to redeem a particular people. The chapter verse I'm going to leave the church to read between now and next week Sunday is Romans chapter 9. The entire chapter. And when we get done at the end of next week's lesson, when we break down and answer this question, we're going to find out if the church truly and sincerely believes that God is sovereign, that God, that God, that God is in complete and total control of everything. Because here are our possibilities. By design, Jesus died for who? 
He could have died for everyone, and the result is everyone gets saved. He could have died for no one, and no one gets saved. He could have died for everyone, making salvation merely possible. Some people get saved. He could have died by design only with the intent of saving some people. And then some of the some get saved. That makes sense? Some of the some? Or he went to the cross with the intent of saving some people. And then all of the some are saved. Now there are five possibilities. I think it's pretty obvious we can eliminate two, right? It doesn't even make any sense that God would send his son to the world to die for no one and no one would be saved. That just defies logic. So we're going to cross that out. And I think it's also readily obvious that by design, God did not send his son on the cross to die for everyone and then everyone gets saved because reality suggests otherwise. People will tell you, I hate God. Pretty plain. I mean, heaven exists for a reason. Hell exists for a reason. And the ultimate problem is this. If someone were to ever say that God by design died for everyone with the intent of saving everyone, that now means God is saving people who say, I love Allah. So option number one, or whatever your religious preference is. So I think it's also pretty obvious that this option is not biblical. So we have three options left. That God died for everyone. The result is some are saved. By design, Jesus died for some. Some of the some are saved. Or... Jesus died for particular people, and everyone that Jesus died for is precisely and exactly those who are saved. We'll leave that for next week. Everyone's going to read Romans chapter 9. And the thing that's animating all of this is if we actually believe God is in charge. If we actually believe, in not in theory, in practice, that God is sovereign. Any questions? Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for the time we have spent together sitting under your word and your teaching. And we knew, O Lord, that going into the book of Romans in this epistle, therein lies the foundational truths of the Christian faith. There are some doctrines, O Lord, that we may find easy to initially appreciate, and others, O Lord, that we will wrestle with and struggle with. We just ask you that as we all go home this week and read Romans chapter 9 and begin wrestling with the doctrine of limited atonement, that you, divine spirit, lead us, guide us, and speak to us so that your truth will be implanted in our spiritual DNA and we may have clarity and be able to articulate that clarity through crystal clear precision to all those whom we meet and all those who are curious about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.